0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Crossing Silos, promoting critical thinking with Epistemic Insight, the podcast that explores how we shatter subject silos and construct an education that is truly multidisciplinary. My name is Robert Campbell, and I will be your host throughout the podcast series. Through these podcasts, my guests and I will discuss the value of moving beyond a compartmentalised approach to education. In each episode, special guests will showcase how they engage with the Epistemic Insight project, how Epistemic Insight frames their view of education, and how they use Epistemic Insight to influence their teaching of their chosen subject. So sit back, relax, and enjoy some thought-provoking discussion.
1: Today, we are privileged to be joined by a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Jane Essex from the University of Strathclyde. So, Jane, why don't you start by introducing yourself?
2: Thank you, Rob. I'm Jane Essex. As Rob said, I moved to the University of Strathclyde five years ago. Um, I was a chemistry teacher in various schools in various parts of England for 16 years, and then I moved into initial teacher education. Um, I'm a chemist through and through, a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry. If you broke me in the middle, you just find the word chemistry running through me. But I do work in all sorts of areas of STEM because it suits the learners I work with. I've worked in two initial teacher education jobs in England and now happily working with initial um, chemistry teachers in Scotland.
1: Perfect. Thanks so much. So um, I know that a particular area of interest of yours is um, special educational needs and and inclusive teaching, including those learners who um, may require an, an adapted approach to learning science. So perhaps you could talk me through
2: how that interest grew, how that how that developed in you. Yeah, well, I, it's quite hard for me to remember a time when it wasn't of interest because I have a very brain-damaged younger sister who's just under four years younger than me. So I think I grew up around people who were neurodivergent. Um, some of them, like my sister, had what in England would be called um, profound and multiple learning difficulties. But I think I just got very interested in how people respond to difference more generally. And um, as a family, we fought for places uh, for children like my sister to be educated. My sister was born four years before the 1970 Act, which ended the term ineducable, But in a rural county like North Yorkshire, where money was tight, some children were still being classified as ineducable. But we knew from observing my sister day to day that what was called ineducable meant not responsive to the usual educational experiences. Um, When I trained as a teacher and I chemist because my degree was largely analytical chemistry my very first day's observation in school prior to doing the pgce i was lucky to see a, a very experienced teacher working with excuse me a group of learners who would have been called in those days lower attaining, or less able And I was really struck by quite how well that teacher got them to engage with scientific ideas by really rooting the science in their everyday experiences. And it sort of set me off on a conceptual, down a conceptual wormhole about Is science always as elitist as it's often portrayed? Does it need to be? How can we mediate that? Is there any benefit to these kids of doing science? Or is this just a teacher making his life bearable because they are expected to teach all children science? And that's just been a kind of career-long quest, really, looking at how diverse learners could find a niche within the science education habitat that we are all working in and on all the time.
1: Perfect. Thank you. And so, um, one of the products that has come out of that lifelong journey is a book, um, so you've got a, an upcoming publication, which is called Inclusive and Accessible Secondary Science. How to teach science effectively to students with additional or special needs. So um, perhaps you could summarise kind of what to expect from that book.
2: Yeah, um, it's divided into my, oh, six sections, and because I've done lots of teaching of students about structures of essays, I do have an introduction. Um, I then spend quite a lot of words. I look at what barriers are embedded in the normal ways of teaching science because I think I don't want to scare anybody from working with children who are neurodiverse or low attaining. But I do want them to think through all the things that we, as successful products of our education, assume that other people can do as well as we can. Section um three is a hu- huge section, so section two looks at both barriers and practical strategies for overcoming barriers. Section three oh sorry, section three is on how to assess inclusively because not only is the curriculum not terribly inclusive often, but assessment is very intentionally non-inclusive, and if we want to assess learning by diverse learners we have to look again at how we recognize success what we term success section four is on lots and lots of outline schemes of work pitched at sort of lower secondary level and in that i exemplify how the approaches and strategies i've talked about in section two and three can be put into action In topics that you would recognize so electricity um earth and space materials um living things and how you can operationalize the principles that i've formulated over a long time of teaching reflecting often get it wrong let let me be honest and say i've learned the hard way in many many cases and then there's a nice conclusion because i know a good essay should have a conclusion and then section 6 is ideas about places to go to get additional help professional bodies people who have bits of money to give away if you want to buy equipment that would help you make your teaching more inclusive not so much medicalized equipment but you know uh, a school that robert and i robert and i've been working with have bought um tabards with all the body organs on so that children can actually see how what's inside them looks so those sorts of extra things that people need money for and don't have budget for in school there are places to go for those so that's what's in the book rob
1: perfect yeah. you've whetted the appetite um, and <laughs> beautifully um so perhaps you could talk through you've had this you've had this clear and I think you articulated almost lifelong passion for inclusive practice, and um, you're know, having some very personal experience of having to work with that from a very young age. And um, perhaps you could talk through the role that epistemic insight plays within that, and um, how you've used EI in some of your teaching or some of your thought processes um, as you support the training teachers that you work with.
2: Yes, I I think that the school curriculum creates a lot of very arbit- sort of quite arbitrary divisions. and I'm not saying that science is the same as religious education or PE, but I think that they that the different approaches that each discipline brings to generating knowledge, analyzing data, understanding the world fundamentally, they can each contribute a different element to understanding real-world complicated problems. And I think one of the common barriers to children who are neurodiverse is that they don't perceive these barriers in the same way. They um, are much more fluid about boundaries so they will dip into knowledge and skills from all across the curriculum to help them tackle something they're working on and I think for me what the epistemic insight does is it says real life doesn't sit in silos it is good to understand the different ways in which people work with their discipline But it is really important to acknowledge that to give a really deep understanding, we need to draw on diverse approaches to knowledge creation, not to privilege some uniquely above others, which is what commonly happens to STEM subjects. Um, Jonathan Osborne talks about science sits at the high curriculum table. I'm a scientist. I'm not going to say it's unimportant. I'm just not convinced that it's less important than religious education or PE. We all have our role to play. It's nice to acknowledge the different roles that we can all play in in creating understanding of the world about us. And that's what I get my student teachers to look at. So um, I run a course with undergraduate primary teachers where, for instance, we look at the story of um the three little wolves and the big bad pig and we look at different accounts of how do you understand houses? Why don't we make houses out of flowers? Could you make a house out of flowers? Who might make a house out of flowers when? Um, so it, it's just given us a different way of unpacking approaches to teaching. And in some ways I think of stop it, stopping the science being so sort of silo wise that that the student teachers feel they can't teach it alongside other things. Many of them say, well I've never thought of using a story to introduce a science topic. But why not? Life is full of stories. We like stories. You're listening to this podcast because you want an interesting story, I imagine. So I think epistemic insights been very empowering. In that way.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much. It's really interesting hearing your experience with neurodiverse learners and hearing how actually they don't compartmentalize the curriculum um, in the same way as um, we do potentially as as teachers, and, and how you therefore support them use their distinctive lenses to construct their own understanding and and so i'm wondering at uh, the extent to which you support um your neurodiverse learners or teachers working with neurodiverse learners appreciate the distinctiveness of each discipline or appreciate you know kind of that old Analogy right now, we're going from our RE lesson, we're taking our RE hat and gloves off, we're walking down the corridor and picking, going into a science lesson, and we're putting our science hat on. And I'm wondering that um, understanding of the distinctiveness between those disciplines, how much you talk about that when you're working with neurodiverse learners?
2: Well, I certainly have done, um, I, and I think. I've worked with colleagues, for instance, a professional storyteller, and their approach to, we were looking at sustainability in the environment, their approach to it is hugely different. They almost draw on folk memory. Um, and there is, yes, I have been very explicit about, we're now going to do science and technology, and we're going to be looking at how do we know what we know about the environment how can technology help us to make a better environment I think my my sort of point of view and I understand if you're a, a theoretical physicist you won't agree but I think for the learners I work with what's key about science is that it uses evidence and what's Um, key about technology is that it looks at practical ways of dealing with um, issues problems design improvement things so they're both I would say quite embodied subjects so they're things to touch and smell and try and push harder and see if it changes and I don't spend lots of time talking about it, but I think that's the message that the young people pick up and they did have a hilarious last summer, we were doing a summer STEM scheme for neurodiverse learners and we said at the end of lunch, right, it's time to go back to the to the work and normally you'd expect 14, 15 years going, oh no. And one, one elbowed the other vigorously and said, come on, we're going to go and do more real science. And what she meant was, we're going to be doing hands-on things. We're going to try things. We're going to look at how what we see and feel helps people to understand. So I think some of it emerges naturally out of disciplinary d- difference. And some of it is illustrated by how you approach the discipline. I've tried to mix a storyteller with theoretical physics. I think that might be a harder one to pull off, truthfully. Well,
1: we can but try. And, <laughs> and so it's really interesting to hear that, that journey. Um, and so perhaps if we may for a moment, we we'll, we'll move tack slightly and talk a little bit about policy because you have quite a unique lens in that um, you are um, based at the University of Strathclyde in Scotland and education is one of those areas of um, public sector that is devolved. Um yes. So Scotland has its own education system that has gone under significant review, I think it's fair to say, in, in, in recent years. Yeah. And is still undergoing review. Um, Indeed. You also work with schools in England. Yes. Uh, as you mentioned earlier on, there's a school in the southeast of England that you and I both... both both work with which is a special school Um, so perhaps you could talk through the distinctiveness of each different approach so in scotland i mean correct me if i'm uh, correct me if i'm wrong in scotland um there's a, a focus on on well-being and themes that transcend disciplinary knowledge whereas in england as um dr alex sinclair in the last podcast was talking about There's an Ofsted, real Ofsted focus on detailed disciplinary knowledge. So, how does your um, approach vary in those two spaces that you're working with, Scotland and England?
2: Um, Not as much as I'd like it to, truthfully, because there's an increasing trend for lower secondary to be used as the preparation for upper secondary and formal assessments in Scotland. Nevertheless, the first two years in Scotland are still um, usually curriculum for excellence, which is a a less prescriptive curriculum. And it does pay greater attention to skills development, well-being, outcomes, those sorts of things. But I do worry that we may be put under pressure to deliver exam results and that may start to change that lower secondary experience. But I, I think one of the dist- one of the things that I pick up in Scotland is actually not simply about the science curriculum, though I very much like the curriculum for excellence. No and the way it lets teachers plot routes through learning outcomes according to topics that are relevant to their learners or their own interests or whatever. But I think the other thing that's very different in Scotland is the outlook on inclusion. I feel that that we benefit from a fairly strong and explicit commitment to achieving the ideal of present participating and achieving um, in whatever way. And there is, you know, a very, very sincere assumption of mainstreaming. Um, And I think England has a longer tradition of separating out different different learners, different people, and that that leaves a legacy where people when a child is different the temptation to say oh well should they be in with the others there's a kind of folk memory around that whereas i think we in scotland are not possibly as keen to remove children who are Diverse. I think that assumption of mainstream education is fairly deeply rooted. That does present challenges, of course, for a mainstream curriculum for an, for a diverse learner, and that's the the intersection that I'm hoping my little book will make some contribution towards. Um, but I think there are, it is a very distinctive. Educational landscape, and it's you know, I had spent spend my first six months madly learning to translate in my head from one policy to another policy landscape. But uh, I think I've made it now.
1: I'm laughing in the background because um, as I continue to work with you as a colleague who's now based in Scotland, I think I went through that journey about a year ago to six months ago when I'm trying to articulate. Uh, the distinctiveness of the curriculum for excellence and and um, the advantages that or differences that they might have over the the, the English curriculum um, so yeah I, I empathize very 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 much um so it's interesting that you're saying that actually um the Scottish system is potentially more inclusive of neurodiverse learners than perhaps the English curriculum is do you think there's a link there between That inclusivity and a a drive for interdisciplinary themes within the Curriculum for Excellence, or do you think it's merely coincidental?
2: I think that there is um, a different understanding of the role of learning and education in Scotland, that it's valued as a sort of community resource, and that puts a certain break on the ideals of very specialist knowledge development at the expense of other learners. Um, I think there is a a national commitment to education that colleges, for instance, further education colleges, which are important bridges for social mobility are better funded in Scotland than in England. I picked that up having done some work in further education colleges. Um, I think the government's commitment to pay tuition fees for Scottish students attending Scottish universities. In lots of ways, education is understood to be very important, but not an elite commodity available only to the most academic and I think that may be a difference. Um, not sure if that answers the question, really, Rob, but I think interdisciplinarity is part of that because if knowledge and education are a community resource, the community includes people with different expertise and interests. And if it belongs to all of them, that diver- those diverse approaches have to be encompassed within... Your provision.
1: Ah, uh, so so beautifully put. And dozing frantically in the background, and you uh, construct a real um, driver and enthusiasm for a model of the purpose of education in and of itself. Um, yes, and it, that that's interesting because we at St Mary's we started off with that as our very first lecture. So, what is the What is the purpose of education? And obviously, as a a science teacher educator, I took a scientific lens. Um, And a previous podcast with one of my colleagues, um, Lisa Panford, was saying exactly the same about her course, um, MFL. What was the purpose of MFL? And she was saying, actually, her reflections of beginning to work in an epistemically insightful way was that, actually, she was being quite defensive and feeling that, you know, she was having to defend the position of MFM. It was a bit like the um, conversation that you were having earlier on with um, Jonathan Osborne saying that, well, science is at the top table and there are these other tables, you know, as if we're at the marriage that the, the, the children can go and eat the dinner at and it doesn't matter if they spill the macaroni and cheese down their backs because nobody's looking at them. All the photographs are being taken at the top table with the important subjects. And it's really interesting that her lens has actually really reframed a position from why do we do MFL, which she now recognizes were perhaps defensive, to actually helping her trainees articulate the distinctive features of MFL and the place that MFL has in these real-world problems. Uh, So she was talking about modern languages actually developing an understanding of cultural diversity and, and the place that we have as an individual and the power dynamics that are placed on certain languages being in the curriculum and certain languages being excluded, for example. Uh, You see, I would say
2: as a scientist, Rob, that that when you teach science, you don't just teach concepts, you teach a foreign language, and that we should approach linguistic aspects of science more than modern linguists do. And I would also say that I have used... Bilingualism to teach learners who are low attainers or low ability, as I hate to hear them called. If you think they lack ability, my comment is you haven't yet asked them to do the thing they're good at, but they are good at something, you need to find out what. But I've approached teaching science through language approaches and actually enhanced understanding. I got into trouble in my last school for teaching through German and British sign language the kids results went up so much that they disple- they they got top marks in the end of year exam compared to the top group and I was in quite a lot of bother for that um but I think we have lots to learn from foreign languages teachers who know far more about this
1: yeah no I completely I completely agree and actually I had the same Epiphany about a year ago, Uh, so well into my journey with epistemic insight, when I recognized that actually, if I wrote the letters capital N, small a, capital C, small l, that had a level of understanding about bonding, about ions, how ions interact, there is substantial underlying information that I understood by writing those four letters in that sequence with that level of capitalization that wasn't necessarily equally as accessible to my trainee teachers who've got a degree in science right let alone these 13 14 year olds who were suddenly trying to introduce these abstract ideas to um, that's
2: right yeah you're speaking another code aren't you
1: yeah, so it's really interesting to hear we've come to that same same conclusion, albeit through perhaps slightly different directions and slightly different streets. So we've we've come to the same end point in the end. That's that's really interesting to hear. So I'm I'm just interested, kind of, um, as you move forward, how how you continue to blend the two. So we've talked previously about your your work on fairy tales and how you might blend both an epistemically insightful approach with your use of stories to teach science so perhaps you could talk through how you blend those two things together
2: yeah how i would approach um a, a situation in a way that let me pull out the science which is sort of where i'm comfortable and what i'm paid to do but also to acknowledge the different disciplines that impact on a situation, be that, I don't know, stories about creation of the earth or um, choosing materials for a purpose, is I would deliberately present the full and complicated situation first and then encourage my student teachers to think about the different disciplines, the different factors that contribute to the situation. Um, So, for instance, talking about creation stories, talking about the fact that where the Earth came from, how the Earth came to be as the Earth is, is one of those fundamental sort of questions that humans have been asking as long as there's, there have been humans with the communication skills to wonder it. Um, and that the different stories have changed as people's experiences have changed. In some cases, different religion, religious traditions have grown up that have encouraged different discussions. Maybe people have migrated and seen different things about the Earth. And scientists have discovered new evidence about the Earth. And asking them to consider who who could use these different explanations for why the creation stories differ so much and how they might gather evidence in their discipline to understand the changes and diversities in creation stories. So the one thing I don't do is say science has the answer. I say science has an answer, but it answers its answer is derived from its approach to knowledge creation, but it doesn't have the only answer.
1: And, and also the, uh, the question that it asks. So, or, or it being science, obviously. So that beautifully articulates this idea that one of our mutual colleagues, Professor Barry Billsley, articulates that you can take a question, you know, one example being, why did the Titanic sink? And depending on the lens that you apply, if you apply a scientific or a historical lens, you may come up with completely different but equally valid answers because they've used distinctive norms of thought and distinctive evidence bases. Uh, And that is a beautiful model of uh, your own development in epistemic insightfulness. So, Jane, that sounds like a beautiful place to end. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Thank
2: you so much for giving me the
1: opportunity to speak to you this afternoon, Rob. Brilliant. And dear listeners, until next time, I will say bye-bye for now. Bye-bye.